Welcome back to the Deadology Podcast from Pencil Hill Studio, New Paltz, New York. I'm your host, Howard Weiner. And on this, the 10th episode of the Deadology Podcast, we're going to take a look at one of the 33 essential dates of Deadology, October 9th. On this date, uh, the Grateful Dead played three times in the 70s, five times in the 80s, and once in the 90s. And with the possible exception of New Year's Eve, I don't think there's a better date in Grateful Dead history. There's so many uh, tremendous shows and you know exciting happenings on this day. And you might ask, why is October nights so great? I you know it, sometimes it's just the way things turn out by luck. But um, two theories came to mind why there might be so many uh, great shows on this day. Uh, first, this applies more to the 1980s. Uh, it's John Lennon's birthday, October 9th. I don't think it affected the Grateful Dead in the 70s, but it obviously impacted them in the 80s after Lennon's murder in 81. Um, so that's one thing. But a, a bigger um, thing that uh, probably makes October 9th such a great date and really makes all the shows from September and October probably the, uh, the hottest months for, for the Grateful Dead is just a calendar thing. Um, every year, the Grateful Dead kind of started from scratch, brought some new songs into the repertoire, uh, tried a few things out, develop, organically developed the sound as the year went on. And I found that most, most years, as they progressed, the spring tour to the summer tour, the hottest tour would be the fall tour because they were totally locked into what they were doing that year. And everything uh, became a lot easier. Um, if they were breaking out a new song, it was better by the fall tour. So it's just an organic thing. I think there's more hot shows in September and October um, than any other time. And they also hit the East Coast a lot in those months. Uh, so this is going to be a, a two-part uh, Deadology, uh, the, uh, Deadology podcast. The first uh, part one, we're going to look at the shows in the 70s. Uh, the three shows are the Winterland San Francisco, 1972, Oakland, Oakland uh, Coliseum, 1976, and the following year in McNichols Arena, Denver, Colorado. But let's start with what many people consider to be the best show, or at least one of the top shows of 76, the Oakland Coliseum. And when I think of 1976, a funny thought came to my mind. There was a a term uh, invented um, at maybe back in 2000, I was on a website, 76 weenies. We had a whole, uh, thread posts going on. It was kind of like a good natured vibe, uh, you know, kind of a, a good natured jab at people who love 1976 shows, uh, because the elitist view is 77 was a much better year. And obviously with the wall of sound in 1974, uh, before their hiatus, that's looked at as one of the great years. So 76 unfairly became like a Rodney Dangerfield, and they came up with this term, the 76 uh, weenies, which I always got a good laugh over. And I actually went to Google. I was like, where did this, where did this uh, term start? I was going to see if I could find out. Um, I typed in 76 weenies, and uh, there was nothing about the Grateful Dead. It was Joey Chestnut, who ate 76 weenies uh, at the Nathan's uh, hot dog eating contest on July 4th. That's the amount of uh, weenies he ate to win the contest, and he did it on two occasions. So I had to refine my search a little bit, and I traced it back to, I found information, probably it was started on Deadnet Central, um, where they came up with this good-natured, uh, 
kind of uh, good natured, no, not put down, but a, a good natured uh, kind of rag on uh, people who loved 76, 76 weenies. And I, I profess right here, especially these days, I am a proud 76 weenie. It's such a great year. And uh, definitely, um, I, I feel like it's overlooked. I know I overlooked it. Every time I'll, I'll be listening to like This Day in Grateful Dead History and uh, Lemieux will break out a, a cool 76 show and I'll be like, geez, I never really focused on this. This is great. They did a lot of, uh, especially in the second set, great segues and, um, you know, just a very interesting, much different year than any other year. Uh, so let me jump into October 9th, 1976, which is uh, at the top of the list for any 76 weenie for sure. Um, it was a, a day on the green. Uh, Bill Graham uh, concert series uh, started in the early seventies. Uh, that's on this day the Great the Grateful Dead opened for the Who. Um, I think I would go see that concert, Grateful Dead and the Who, on the same bill. And the the, the point of the uh, the series, pretty much, to kind of in a nutshell, to kind of wrap it up. Um, Bill Graham wanted to put something together where they weren't doing these festival three day festivals. Um, which, you know, are, are a logistic nightmare, you know, and uh, a lot of concerns, a lot of uh, things that go wrong, uh, Altamont, <laughs> a lot of things that go wrong with these festivals, and it's uh, a big ordeal to put together a festival. So this was a way of, you know, filling up the Oakland Coliseum during the day, get everybody in, see a couple of big bands, get everybody out in one day a lot easier, and it worked pretty good. They got, a, you know, a lot of great uh, shows in the 70s, but uh, this one, uh, they, they also continued it through the 80s and, and into the early 90s. But um, this one really stands out, The Grateful Dead and The Who. You don't need anything more than that. So um, I, I, this, the way this show starts off, Promised Land and Half Step, you could tell The Grateful Dead came out with an attitude on this night. They knew The Who were there, uh, and they weren't going to be outplayed or upstaged. It was almost, they came out playing with this like urgency, like they were defending their turf, a uh, real sharp attitude. They're playing a hot promised land it stands out. You could definitely just tell everybody in the band is, is ramping it up. And then Mississippi half step uptown Tootaloo. Uh boy, did this song step up. It was a, you know, a great song throughout the 72, 74 period. But in 1976, it began to ascend to a masterpiece. And this is an excellent version here in Oakland, especially for a second song of the show. Obviously, in 1977, Mississippi Half-Step became a masterpiece, but it was on its way. Um, you know, definitely, this is a great, great version in Oakland, second song, so things are progressing nicely. Cassidy is in the third spot. Um, it's still in the early stages. Cassidy would kind of hit its prime in the 80s, but this is a, Garcia is just shredding, and the band is uh, completely on here. First set in the Oakland Coliseum. Uh, the next portion of this uh, opening set kind of rolls along. Typical songs, all played very well. Uh, Tennessee Jed, Looks Like Rain, They Love Each Other, Minglewood Blues. And then it's the, this last four-song segment um, that's just unbelievable here at the end of the first set of um, October 9th, 76. They play a standalone Scarlet Begonias, and this is... Definitely one of the best standalone Scarlets. Uh, right, the only one I could think of that's better is maybe the March 20th from the Winterland, March 20th, 1977. But um, yeah, it just the song sounds so great. Uh, they get the jam going pretty good. And in the uh, the ending jam of this Begonias, 
uh, they, they hit a point where they're doing some chord riffing that sounds like a little fire in the mountain, uh, kind of foretelling what's to come uh, with uh, Scarlet going into fire. Obviously, Fire in the Mountain hadn't been written at this point, but on, um, I believe the date is October 76th, only a week earlier, uh, they played Mickey Hart's Happiness is Drumming, which was really the precursor to Fire on the Mountain. And you could kind of hear a little bit of that riffing in uh, the middle of that uh, long Scarlet outro. And then after that, they uh, Garcia goes back to just shredding the begonias. And uh, awesome version. Um, then Weir follows up with um, his... his also kind of like a new combo is really just broken out in 76 lazy lightning supplication um just such a charge into this version uh so you got scarlet begonias lazy lightning supplication and then the set closes out with sugary uh the the amazing uh song now it has the power to be a set ender um up through 74 the versions were nice but it was more of just another great you know, song alongside Ramble on Rose or something from the first set, but now it's becoming an instrumental masterpiece. They're really uh, stretching out the jams. And this Sugary in particular, the first two jams, Smoke, really good stuff. Um, so you don't see many or you don't hear many first set endings like that. Scarlet Begonias, Lazy Lightning, Supplication, Sugary, um, A for originality, A for uh, performance. So a great first set kicks things off. And things only get stranger and hotter in set two. Before set two commences, Bob Weir comes out on stage and announces something to the effect that Bill Graham uh, asked the band to only play an hour after they start. So Weir says, hey, we're not going to start for a while. Uh, jokingly, of course. And when it's all said and done, once the Grateful Dead do start second two, it's two hours uh, before uh, the set's over with double encores. So I'm Bill Graham was probably happy to get away with only two hours. He asked for one, uh, but this is the Grateful Dead. And it's all time out of mind with this band. So set two opens to the glorious riffs and melody line of St. Stephen, getting everybody in Oakland pumped up. And there's just something so regal about that song. It's such a great song to, to segue into, to segue out of. And uh, the Grateful Dead is so masterful in these 1972 second sets, especially this one, one in Oakland, splitting up songs, reprising, you know, just uh, you wonder how, if any of this, how much was premeditated or if it was just, how much was done on the fly, but it's just masterful uh, stuff going on. So uh, St. Stephen into Not Fade Away, uh, pretty hot version of Not Fade Away. Uh, bands uh, ripping along, and they take it back into St. Stephen, a nice, powerful transition back into St. Stephen. And um, can you answer? Yes, I can. But what would be the answer to the answer man? Split second, then they jump into help on the way. Oh my God! It's the it's one of the coolest transitions ever. I could I could hear that thing every every time I listen to this. I have to hear that again five or six times. It's uh it's it's that powerful, impactful, and it's like the best best intro for help on the way. Um, it really gets things uh, ramped up. And these night these early versions of help on the way from uh, this year and the following year seventy seven, 
uh, they fully developed that uh, in-between verse jam. So Help on the Way by itself is huge. And man, the the band is just kicking on this one. It's uh, it's like a, a, a brass band. Uh, it sounds like a brass band on uh, on Benny's, you know, just uh, shredding. It's, it's it's an incredible sound. Definitely, I think this is my favorite Help on the Way. And um, the, the Help on the Way rolls along. Go obviously goes into Slipknot. And it's a good Slipknot. They they know their the band is heading towards not 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 going into Franklin's, but they uh, kind of slide into drums out of Slipknot, so it gets nice and spacey. Um, definitely the the weird '76 Slipknot thing going on. Uh, cool drum drum solo, which is more of an extension of segue than really a drum solo, but it's uh, Slipknot. And then they pause and go into Samson and Delilah. And once again, these 76 versions of Samson and Delilah are just so different uh, than what you would hear in the future. Um, very funky. You know, it was, it was almost like a funk song as opposed to straight out rock and roll. And I, I do love the 77 versions. I think they're better where they actually just rip Samson and, and it's a powerful rock song. But there's just this cool, funky groove, which is unique to 76 and Samson and Delilah. And uh, so good Samson... And then they segue back into Slipknot. And this is, ju- by the way, this is the second reprise, the reprise St. Stephen. Now they're reprising Slipknot. And man, they take their time on this. This sli- And it's so hot. The the reprise of Slipknot in this situation is even better than the first part. Just uh, tremendous, tremendous stuff. That's This is one of the highlights of the show, that reprise from Slipknot. And they do a nice, thoughtful, well-planned-out bridge, and then bam, into Franklin's Tower. Deadheads in Oakland must have been swooning and swaying to this amazing Franklin's Tower. Uh, the band is just uh, rocking it out. Franklin's is one of those songs where it's kind of uh, difficult to, for really any guitarist to be creative. You get a lot of opportunities and there's not much change or uh, you know int- intricacy to the song. So it really takes a lot of uh, creativity in a simple song like that to come up with uh, different musical ideas, and Garcia does an amazing job on this version. Uh, very cool Franklin's, probably about 12, 13 minutes long. And the set ends with a it's Saturday night, so they rock it on home. Uh, the set comes all the way full circle, one more Saturday night conclusion. And I think I mentioned earlier that it's a, it was a double encore. It's not a double encore. I th- immediately considered one more Saturday night the, the second encore, but it's actually Franklin's into one more Saturday night. And then uh, a great version of U.S. Blues for the encore. And just to, to put it back into perspective at the time, I think it may have, U.S. Blues may have got a little boring uh, for some of us who saw the Grateful Dead so many times in the 80s and 90s, uh, a pretty commonplace uh, encore. But you got to remember back in, this was like the new song was very happening. Uh, must have been incredibly exciting. You could hear the excitement in the band as they're playing U.S. Blues. Um, and this is the last number uh, big finale. Uh, they definitely, the Grateful Dead defended their turf, an amazing show. Um, from most accounts that I've read, not just from Deadheads, but it was uh, pretty widely agreed that the Grateful Dead on this occasion blew away the Who, who followed.
Before diving into the Denver show, um, I just want to point out three other shows which I think are up there with this Oakland show. Uh, as far as great 1976 shows, you got one of the early ones, which um, only in the last couple of years kind of surprised me. One of the early first shows of the year, Boston Music Hall on, on uh, June 9th. Uh, great show. Um, then I, the Orpheum, July 18th. Um, that whole Orpheum run was great, but that July 18th show. And then about a week after this Oakland show, uh, Shrine Auditorium on October 15th. I would check that one out. That's an incredible show. Other one comes a time, Franklin Sugar Mag 10, that's set. Um, yeah, so definitely 76, even shows you don't know or I fully don't know inside out. They ne- never cease to amaze. A lot of great stuff that year. So now we move forward to Mile High in Denver, 1977. And this, uh, you know, coming into looking at this one again, I did think it was one of the most underrated shows of the year. And I do want to thank a couple of my listeners, um, Bob and, and Paul. They sent me an email and they suggested that for a future episode of uh, the Deadology podcast, I should do something like the 33 most underrated uh, Grateful Dead shows. And thanks, because that's an amazing idea. It's also an amazing idea for a book. Now, for the podcast, I'm probably not going to do 33, but I will go into a darkness retreat like Aaron Rodgers with with you know with with uh, my my iPhone so I can listen to some shows. And I'll come out with um, some underrated shows. Um, that's definitely going to be a future episode. A, a great idea to. Um, talk about some of the underrated Overlook shows. Uh, so this Denver show, I, I considered it underrated, but maybe there's a reason it's underrated. It's, you know, it's definitely not one of the more talked about shows from 77, but I did come to the conclusion that it's really the ending segment of that first set where, uh, where this show is just, it's so powerful. It's something that everybody's got to listen to, even if it's not a top shelf uh, 77 show. So we get a you know typical first set rolling along. Um, there's so much to get to from October 9th. I'm not going to go to the song by song breakdown, uh, but towards the last segment of the set, you get a nice brown eyed women followed by uh, an electrified lazy lightning supplication. One of the interesting things here is um, you got a lazy lightning supplication sugary at this Denver show. Same thing as a year earlier, and. Those songs may have only been lined up a few other times like that, so it's unusual. It's kind of strange that it happened again a year later on the same date, but a very powerful lazy lightning supplication, and then it goes into Sugaree, and by this time in 1977, Sugaree is epic. Um, this version will not compare with the very best from May, um, but the second solo, it's demonic on the Sugaree. It's they unloaded everything into it. The band is just playing as quick as possible. Keith, the drummers, it's just, it's unbelievable. And, you know, somehow they, they you know, they just keep uh, bombarding, you know, harder and harder, finding different chords to, you know, different uh, fanning and solos. And this one sugary is uh, jam. The second solo is up there with anything. It's really incredible. And the only thing that doesn't make this a top contender for Sugary is the third solo they don't even take a, a swing at. It's one of the quickest, like, just nothing for the, for the third instrumental. I like a well-developed Sugary where it's one, two, three. Uh, but some of the better ones just have that, 
that killer second solo where they unloaded everything and there's nothing left. And that's what happened on this McNichols one, man. They, the band just unloaded everything they had in the second solo. So uh, amazing, almost demonic playing in that. And it set the stage. So we got Lazy Lightning, Supplication, Sugary, A Music Never Stopped Ending. And I, I've reconsidered my Music Never Stopped ratings. This is the best one. I Previously, I, I believe the uh, Buffalo War Memorial uh, was, was the best one. I think I, I've had that number one for a long time. This one is insane, man, from uh, Denver. It just what, what, they, what they do in this uh, Music Never Stopped, there's such such power and it's kind of like that Cornell morning dew where the, where the band has just got the synergy going all at once. Um, just playing. You can't even imagine a band could play that hard and that fast. And the beautiful thing about this, um, which makes it a must listen is Garcia is leading the way. He's one step ahead of the band, which is almost impossible, but his thought process, he le- he's leading the band into different alleys, nooks and crannies, and everything is going full speed. So it's like this incredible, intricate improvisation. Yet at the same time, it's just straightforward, thunderous rock and roll. It's an amazing combination. When I listen to this, I don't even see how a band could be standing there on a stage. Everybody in, in McNichols Arena had to be jumping up and down during this. Um, it's just it's the most energetic and one of the most beautiful improvisational pieces in the, that music never stopped. So um, if you're if you haven't listened to a lot of the show, at least get to that ending of the first set. Um, the sugary and the music never stopped. Um, I think uh, Dick uh, put out uh, for one of his Dick's picks. I forget the exact number. Oklahoma City, and he talked about Primal Dead, and he had a few examples of that. And one of the examples was Oklahoma, which was the next show, October 11th. For me, this would be if using that concept of this insane playing Primal Dead. For me, this Denver show at the end of the first set, that's Primal Dead, as probably is that October 11th show. So there was definitely, they were they were cued into something at, at this point with their playing. Um, just the, the set lists probably weren't as creative or as, or as long as May, but the, the playing in October and November of 77, performance-wise, Grateful Dead were as good, possibly even better than uh, earlier in the year. So we roll to the second set, um, the Samson and Delilah that kicks off the set two in Denver. Incredible. It's cut from the same cloth as that music never stopped, just an extremely hot Samson. And then they do Scarlet Fire. I, I like the Scarlet Fire a lot. Um, it's just not like the ones from May. Uh, it just I think it's like they hit they hit like a creative malaise with the Scarlet Fires in '77. I've talked about this before, but um, actually it's a, it's a very good version. Um, just uh, not, not on par with what they were doing early, earlier in the year. And then it's uh, estimated he's gone. Um, I think there's a trucking in there, um, terrapin or round and around. It's it's all good. They they played everything good in the second set, but it never really. You know, they, they never really built the momentum. Everything from this show, really, the the crux of listening to it would be the end of the first set and the Samson Scarlet Fire. Um, just a mind-blowing playing, a must, must listen. Let's jump into that October 9th time travel machine and go back to the wonderful year of 1972. So on October 9th, the Grateful Dead hometown show after a triumphant year, you know, Europe 72, and they were just coming off 
arguably a tour that was as good, if not better, than uh, Europe 72. The East Coast Swing. Um, also, they, they earlier in the year, they did the Roosevelt Stadium show. Uh, Veneta is a huge show. Uh, you got the Berkeley shows from August, but that's September 72. As good, maybe better than any tour they've ever done. Uh, the, in that tour, you got the epic Philly show from September 21st. Um, the Waterbury shows, uh, 23rd and 24th. Stanley Theater, that three-night run, just brilliant shows, night after night. And uh, that East Coast run ended up on October 2nd. So they returned home, the most triumphant band, and probably the most triumphant uh, feeling returning home for that uh, that show in the Winterland. Now, the thing with this Winterland show, it's a great show. But as far as 72 shows, the bar is so freaking high that you can't call this one of the better shows of 72. But it's such an amazing listen, uh, just incredible show. You know, uh, you, can, you can't you can't criticize it. It's it's brilliant stuff. But it's not one of the better shows of '72. But here's here's the highlights. Uh, fifth song of the first set, an amazing Black Throat to win. Song was really coming to its own. Um, I think it, the, the best versions are in, are in '72. Um, you know, great Garcia's noodling away and Weir's howling during during the ending. Very cool. A uh, nice electric friend of the devil. Those are always a treat. So there's a lot of cool, rare stuff in this set. As the set rolls along, 10th song, the breakout of Box of Rain, the first Box of Rain. Um, you know, Phil does a nice job on it. Singing's all good. Uh, very cool version. Surprised they didn't try it earlier, but this one was uh, triumphant for sure. After Box of Rain, uh, the highlight of the first set is the China Cat Rider. Um, so in, in 1973, they... China Cat took a step up with the uh, Feeling Groovy Jam, but man, these 72 uh, cats towards the end of the year, they really start stretching it out, and I think this is my favorite 72 cat. I I was just amazed listening to it, man. It's just bursting with country fresh flavor, and you know, after they hit the crescendo, they're starting, you know, the the fanfare part of uh, the China Cat intro. Um, Garcia keeps noodling on and on uh, before they go into Ryder. Just very tight, very, very exciting, man. Cat really was taking a step forward here and it felt like it needed even more. So they threw the, full, the feeling groovy jam in uh, in 73. And then it goes into Ryder and there's just a very excited uh, feeling to it in the singing here. Very uh, soulful, great stuff. Uh, sugary playing, you know, obviously a, a 72 sugary which just makes it another good song and uh, very jazzy uh, playing in the band. Not as insane as like the Vanita version, but uh, Keith is really doing a lot of amazing playing. Sometimes in, in these playing in the bands, you just listen to what Keith does and you can see why everybody had such a great regard for him. And especially like in 72, I think 72 was definitely his best year. Played it his first year with the band was just, re- he played so once he got, once he got uh, settled in, man, he did some incredible stuff, uh, you know, piano playing that year. So so that ends the first set. Second set starts off a little bit of uh, an embarrassment, an unusual thing at the great, at a Grateful Dead show. Um, the, there was always such a musical, after the acid tests, the Grateful Dead really controlled their stage. You know, um, there were no intruders or, you know, strange artists coming in to kind of mess with their flow. Uh, but Grace Slick uh, joined the band that night, and let's say she was a little inebriated uh, for the first song. Uh, just a very messy, 
uh, kind of jam with her, yelling out, screaming a couple things, and they they <laughs> basically hauled her off the stage. Uh, it's a shame that this exists on tape. You would rather not even hear that this existed, but um, that's the way the second set starts. Instead of She's Gone, they played He's Gone to open the second set. And then the set, kind of like the highlight of the second set is what follows. You get like a, a great little three-song rock out here. Uh, Big River, followed by Mississippi Half Step, and then another Smoking Greatest Story. I just want to jump back, take a half step back to that Mississippi Half Step. Uh, very cool version for 1972. Garcia's just shredding it. Um, as as in, in the upcoming years, 73, 74, I think they leveled Mississippi Half Step, step out, played the song, uh, presented it better. Um, it's definitely a little rambunctious in 72, but I love those rambunctious versions where they really don't have the song exactly where they want it, but they're jamming and stretching it out. Uh, Gar- Garcia and, and, and company really do some nice uh, instrumental work on this half step. Very cool. Then things settled down. Nice broke down palace. And then I think that the one thing which this show really could have been up there, um, the truck and other one, Warfrat and Mac, Casey Jones, it all sounds great. Typical, great uh, 72 second half to close it out. But it's a very short other one for 72. And maybe they were just a little tired, whatever. But the the second half of the show just didn't hit like it usually would in 72. But overall, this is like one of those tapes from the Box of Rain to the China Cat uh, to the great half step in the middle there. Uh, one of these, you, you, you break out the show and it's just so worthwhile because there's, it's 1972. Can't go wrong with 72. And that wraps up part one of episode 10, October 9th in the 70s. In a couple of days, I'll have the October 9th, 80s, five shows. Looking forward to that. I think that's an even more intriguing episode, uh, really some uh, interesting Uh, different 1980s shows coming up. And thanks for listening. I'm your host, Howard Weiner. Um, If you're interested in October 9th and other essential dates in Grateful Dead history, my book, Deadology, The 33 Essential Dates of Grateful Dead History, is available on Amazon, website, tangledupintunes.com. And I'll get that uh, podcast up and going in a few days for you, the 80s, October 9th. Looking forward to it. Once again, thanks for listening. Peace out. Take a short break. We'll be back in just a few minutes so everybody hang loose.